It's not just a funny story about haha, you might call your kid a dumpling, but what if your kid actually was a dumpling? Jesus definitely employed food as a form of memory. Part of the problem is tunnel vision. Are you telling me that she is an unreliable narrator? <laughs> I, I might be. I might be. There are no new words under the sun. There are no new notes I have left to hum. There are no new rhymes yet to be sung. There are no new chords that strings haven't strummed. Hello and welcome to another episode of Unreliable Narrators, where we discuss media, literature, and the arts and how they relate to Christ, the self, and the world. I'm Raymond Dokabell. And I'm Sophie Klomperens. And I think that this probably might be the third or fourth Asian art piece that we've done so far. Actually, I haven't been counting, but we've been doing them a lot in a row. Actually, we've been going one after the other. It's a good thing we have an expert in the room who's studying, (laughs) studying Asian studies. Yes, yes. Actually, I feel a little selfish, to be honest, because I've been... I've been pushing you to do more of these Asian art pieces just because I happen to be uh, doing Asian studies in graduate school. So <laughs> that's it's, okay. Uh, you did watch Full Metal Alchemist and record a whole episode about it just because I begged you to. So I think we're probably even. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's more on the list. There's there's Minotti and there's uh, uh, With the Wind Rises, I think, are the two other Asian art pieces. And there happens to be quite a lot of Asian art pieces on the Mars Hill list, which is interesting. Um, I think Minotti actually is, is, in a way, the most closely related to this piece that we're going to be doing thematically. Um, we're going to be talking about a Pixar short film called Bao, which came out in 2018. It was released by a Canadian Chinese film director, Domi Shi. She's about 33 years old, which is infuriating. I hate it when young people are more successful than me. (laughs) (laughs) You're not 33 yet. It's fine. Yeah, I'm basically 33. And, you know, Asians don't raisin, so she looks like she's my age. So, um, (laughs) uh, anyway, she, she... she worked on the film Inside Out with Pete Docter, and Pete Docter was sort of her mentor and recognized her talent on the film and gave her the opportunity to direct her own film, uh, which came out with The Incredibles 2, which was a disaster, but we won't True. get into that. Um, I think actually it's interesting because for me, in my opinion, a lot of P- Pixar's feature films have really... Uh, deteriorated in quality, but their short films have proven to have quite a lot of staying power in terms of quality. In fact, I would argue that ever since the Pixar feature started going down, the short film quality started going up. Uh, hmm. We got some really good short films that came out of Pixar, and this this is one of them. And I think part of the reason why is because there's too much pressure now on the feature film to produce a hit and to stay true to the brand, so to speak. And in uh, the Pixar short films, not only is there the freedom to experiment and 
try different stories and have a little bit more independence in terms of realizing one's di own directorial vision. You can also experiment more artistically. And I think both of those things give uh, make the short film a more interesting place. And uh, this in this film, in, in, in traditional Pixar short films, there's never any dialogue. That goes all the way back to when Pixar started, because in it, it's uh, uh, well, even when Pixar started, they started making these short films, even though that they had sound, they made them without dialogue in honor of the tradition of the Disney short films that came before them, because in the early days of animation, uh, there were not any, they didn't have the technology to record dialogue. And so it is probably, it's very powerful and Pixar is very good at it because part of what they pride themselves in, especially in animation, is being able to tell stories without words. And so they've really got it down to, to a science. So anyway, this, this film, this short film is the first uh, Pixar short to be directed by a Chinese film director. And also by a woman, right? Yes, also the first uh, female Pixar film director. Yeah, I remember, I remember seeing this short for the first time back when I saw The Incredibles two, and maybe maybe my opinion of this short afterwards, I sort of thought I didn't like it because of the movie because I didn't like the second Incredibles. And so maybe I sort of thought that this short, I felt the same way about it, but I don't remember particularly liking it or being super moved by it or even just getting it the first time. And I literally had not watched it again until what, 20 minutes ago <laughs> when I was getting ready to record this episode. And I was watching it kind of expecting to have the same experience, kind of expecting not to think it was the greatest thing ever. And found myself just in tears by the end. And that's just what happens with every single Pixar animation ever, is that I always am crying at the end, but my reaction is always, why am I crying? Even when it's, like when I watched Onward, where it's a stupid, stupid concept about uh, someone, like a, a dad with, it's just his pants, like it's only his legs and he has no upper half of his body and it's so dumb and I was still crying at that. Anyway, that's the Pixar magic, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. I there there is something about that. Even their B material, even the 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 their worst films, they somehow managed to they figured out how human emotions work and they just know how to push them. So They push those buttons. They they push the buttons. Yeah. So this this film it's about a the story of a mother and her son, but we don't really know that until the end uh, because the story it looks like it's set in Shanghai although there's some Canadian there's like a Canadian flag somewhere oh yeah mm -hmm. but there's the radio tower so it is set in Canada I thought I for, for a second I thought there was a tower in the background that I mistook for the radio tower in Shanghai but I think there's also a tower in Canada mm. so it's set in Canada uh, Chinese Canadian and and uh, it's about this mom. She makes these dumplings. 
And when she's about to eat one of the dumplings, it turns into a little face and a little nose pops up and a little arm and a leg pops up. And it turns out to be a little dumpling with a face. And that's how you know you're in a Pixar movie. Um, yep. And of course, and so she she starts raising this, this little dumpling kid. Um, Very quickly. It doesn't take her any time. She just, the face shows up. She looks at it. She's initially surprised. And then she's like, oh, it's super cute. And then instantly starts raising this dumpling as her child. Yep, yep, yep. And... And uh, she's very protective of it. When when it falls over, his face like gets flattened a little bit, and so she has to mold it, put fill the face back up, and put some pork in his mouth so that is so that the dumpling gets filled back up. Takes him everywhere that there, uh, everywhere that she goes, and and the dumpling apparently grows. We don't know why. It's a Pixar movie. Just accept it. The dumpling grows. She does the little thing where she marks his height with a pencil against the banister wall. And as this kid grows up, uh, he starts seeing kids playing soccer and he wants to join him, join them. And the mother is being very protective, doesn't want the kid to get hurt. So whenever the kid goes out and plays, it gets a little banged up. She comes in and starts patting him and coddling him. And eventually he starts getting a little bit more a little bit more rebellious and it's actually at this part of the film when i was watching it in the theaters that the audience started laughing and i think the reason why they were laughing is at that it was at that point that they recognized what kind of story it was right mm-hmm. they recognized that this was the the rebel the rebellious te- teenager um, because you begin seeing those tropes of the rebellious teenager so this this half-grown dumpling starts uh living in uh locking himself in his room has a keep out sign starts going out yep. with uh, wearing a leather jacket and going out with his friends and of course it looks ridiculous because he's a tiny little dumpling i think it's also important that the dumpling does not grow very much it doesn't really change in size like she does mark his height but he doesn't become the height of a normal child or a normal teenager or whatever he's still at his very highest he's like maybe as tall as her ankle or maybe a little bit taller than that he does not get very Mm -hmm. very high right right and this culminates this culminates when uh one day the little dumpling comes back and she bring and he brings an american girlfriend or a white girlfriend into into the house and and the mom is utterly shocked at this point because the girlfriend comes in and shows a little wedding ring says we're getting married and He's about to march out the door with his girlfriend and the mom has slams the door shut and has a little struggle with the kid because she doesn't want him to leave. And this is probably where it gets the most emotionally intense. And after they struggle for a little bit at the doorway, uh, it climaxes with the mom grabbing the dumpling and eating it. And... When I watched it in theaters, the audience gasped when they saw that moment. Yep. And apparently in the original pitch, Dummy she had her crunching and munching on the, on, on, on the dumpling while tears were streaming from her eyes. But oh my Pete gosh. Doctor, but Pete Doctor told her to uh, tone it back a little bit because that was just <laughs> a little bit too intense. That is too much. Yeah. 
was too much. But actually, I think I've noticed that particularly with uh, Chinese artists and film directors is they do not hold things back uh, to a degree that that I think people in the West Western sensibilities are just not comfortable with. But they will really they will really go far with these intense emotions. And I mean, that was really the central idea of the of the movie. That was her inspiration of the movie uh, for the film, because it was something that her mom would often say to her. Uh, this metaphor of eating someone because you love them so much. I could eat you up because I love you so much. You know, you're my little dumpling. So there's obviously a metaphor there going on. And she wanted to articulate in this story the intensity of that feeling. Of, mm -hmm. And I think the only way that you could really communicate the intensity of that feeling was by portraying this, this boy as a dumpling and then having her eat him. Mm -hmm. And, well, what we discover at the end of the story is that this whole relationship, this whole idea of the boy as a dumpling isn't really what was going on. Uh, after she's, she, after she's alone in her room, uh, the father shows up and the father wasn't present. He was present at the beginning of the film, but he disappeared. Father comes back and a new figure walks in and visually for a second, you think that it's the dumpling because of the shape of the face, but then you realize it's her actual son. And that's when you realize that the whole thing was just a metaphor for her son. And we got tricked again. We got tricked again. And actually I think that at this point Pixar has got to the point where they they're really not even bothering to explain these things to kids. I think there was a time when they were there was a kind of happy medium where they tried to make things comprehensible that if most kids would not get this immediately. In fact, there was a kid in the theater who was like What's going on? Why? Who's? And the mom was like explaining to him, it's a metaphor. <laughs> so <laughs> they didn't, they didn't quite get it. But yeah, so, so, uh, so the son has a reconciliation with the mother and the way they reconcile is he brings up a box of bread buns and they eat, they have a little bit of communion together and then she is eventually comes around to accepting the son's uh, uh, white Canadian white girlfriend as part of the family, and that's how the story ends. Well, because they very clearly they've gotten married in the interim. They've got they've already gotten married. Uh, yeah, because we know that from the um, from the wedding ring. So you didn't you didn't really it just didn't really speak to you the first time you saw it. No. But I also, I was younger. It came out, what, 2018? And I would have been, like, I guess I was in college. But I was, like, a sophomore and I didn't know anything. <laughs> um, <laughs> maybe I was at the end of my freshman year. And so that would, that would make sense. But I think that I just hadn't quite experienced enough life myself. I hadn't, like, come across the fact, like, I'm, I'm getting married. I'm going to be doing a little bit what this dumpling is doing. Um, and I just wasn't at that point yet, I think. Or maybe I just didn't get it. Maybe I, the metaphor kind of went past me just like it went past the little kid in the theater when you were watching. I don't really know. But this time it definitely 
definitely got me. And it's actually, it wasn't the, the eating of the dumpling that got me. Um, I was invested at that point, but it didn't, what made me cry was when she sees the figure walking up and it looks like the dumpling and she kind of rubs her eyes and she looks back and it's her son who's all grown up and you see him for the first time. Um, and that moment I think is particularly well done, particularly powerful because it's the moment where suddenly everything makes sense, right? There's this little twist, this little reversal where it's not just a funny story about, haha, you might call your kid a dumpling, but what if your kid actually was a dumpling? It's like, Mm-hmm. This is this is just a way of talking about the way that parents can love their children and talking about the ways in which that can be destructive but also can be healed and all that kind of comes together in this one moment. Yeah, yeah. And it is it's so difficult it's so difficult to to put into words the relationship between a, a mother mother and a child um and I think part of the reason why it's difficult is because you want to empathize, especially with her point of view, especially in this story. Like you feel deeply the way that she feels. Um, and yet we know that it, she is kind of the villain of this story. Mm-hmm. Um and so we're in an awkward position because we're sort of empathizing with the villain. And and I think that's what makes it difficult and uncomfortable because, because in order to be a good parent, you have to act against something that is so fundamental to your being. And mm-hmm. why is it like that? Why is life like that? Um, shouldn't shouldn't why why weren't we made with some some uh, natural instincts that that would make it easier for us to let the bird fly from the nest um instead we actually have to act against our natural instincts to a point which is almost unbearably intense yeah um in the interest of being a good person so that's an interesting thing because we have to deal with we have to deal with we want to be we want to abide by what's natural right and mm-hmm. what is natural is good because that's the way god made us um but also what's good means acting against what is natural at the same time and at right. certain times and it's at those times that i think our suffering is the most intense yeah I think that, so, I think that there are kind of two different ways in which this mother displays a tendency to to overprotect or to coddle in a way that is not healthy for this child. And I think one of it is, one, one of those ways is early in the child's life, the dumpling's life, I guess. <laughs> and then one of the mm-hmm. ways is at the end. And I think sort of the first thing that we encounter is, okay, so the first time that we see her protecting this little kid, this little dumpling, is she's, um, I forget what she's doing. I think it's like a, some kind of, it's like yoga, but she's like moving her arms around. What's that called? Do you know? Tai Chi. Tai Chi. She's doing Tai Chi. And this, the dog comes running by and grabs the dumpling and goes running away. And she goes, oh no. And she goes running after them. 
And that is an appropriate level of fear and an appropriate response, I would say, because the dog definitely can eat the dumpling and the dumpling is also tiny at this point. The dumpling is still a very small child. And I think that corresponds to if you have a very young child, if you have a two-year-old and your two-year-old is near something that could hurt him if he's near a, a road or any any dangerous place you have to respond with an appropriate level of fear in order to protect this child because the child isn't able to protect itself yet but really quickly almost the very next scene after the kid grows up a little bit um he's looks like he's maybe more like 12 or or 8 or whatever and they're in like a field or a park and there are these kids playing soccer and this little dumpling goes and runs and kind of tries to play soccer with these kids. And clearly at this point, there's no danger in the soccer ball. There's no real danger with these kids. And she could just let him play and make friends, which would obviously be good for this dumpling. And instead she comes over and she like pushes the ball out of the way because she's concerned because when the ball hit him, it kind of made a little dent in his head. It made him a little bit a little bit hurt, which is funny, right, from the outside. It doesn't... A little banged up. Yeah. And clearly, he's not all that upset about it. He does not seem like it hurts him. But she she is really upset about this, and she is really interested in protecting him. And that reminded me of one of the chapters, one of the rules from Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life, which is old hat for us here at Unreliable Narrators. <laughs> we love Jordan Peterson. And the chapter is called Do Not Bother Children When They Are Skateboarding. And... A lot of this chapter, I will say, I think is a lot of the chapter is about masculinity and femininity and the patriarchy. And I don't know that I would agree with everything that Peterson says in this chapter. But the beginning statement he makes, his initial thesis is about allowing children to play in a way that is a little bit risky, just risky enough, because that's the way that children prepare to encounter real danger in the real world. That you have to fight some play dragons before you can fight real dragons in the real world. And that if you protect children from that, then you're actually doing them a disservice. You are loving them in a way that is harmful to them. And he talks, if I remember correctly, about playgrounds. So how playgrounds used to have some sharp edges and metal surfaces and they weren't... um, They weren't covered over with foam. They weren't designed with the intention of nobody can possibly get hurt here. They were. Yep, and we all survived. We were fine. I played on those playgrounds. Yeah, yeah, same. And now a lot of playgrounds are built with extreme safety in mind, and that that makes them less fun. And it not only makes them less fun, but it's actually a disservice to the children because the children don't get to play in an environment that mimics in some way the real world where there are risks, where you do have to be a little bit careful, where you do have to think about what consequences your actions might have. And he uses skateboarding as an example too, where skateboarding is kind of dangerous. You could get hurt, you could fall, you could skin your knee. You could even get a concussion. There's all sorts of things that you could do if you skateboard, or you play football or any kind of sport. And when parents are so afraid for their children that they prevent their child from participating in those activities that are going to be good for them, but also a little bit risky, then they may think that they are loving the child, but they are actually 
inhibiting the child. They're preventing the child from growing in the way that is appropriate for them. Well, well, they're not only inhibiting the child, but they're also making it more likely for the child to make overly risky decisions because the child doesn't have any sense of what's dangerous anymore. Mm -hmm. um, you can't be a judge of whether I'm in danger because they've never had to deal with the emotion of fear because they know that they're safe all the time. Yeah, and it's also, I think, training the parent. So if you, if you are holding on so tightly from a very early age, you're training yourself not to let go, which is then, I think, a little bit what relates to the end of this story. The first signs that we see that this mother is not really going to be willing to let this child go is when she doesn't let him play soccer. It's when she's overly concerned about him and wanting to check up on him all the time and not wanting him to do things that might possibly be dangerous. You're already going, okay, oh no, I think I know what kind of person this is. I think I know that she is not going to be able to let this dumpling go when it's time for him to leave. And that's just because she is that kind of person, but it's also maybe because she's been practicing it her whole life or his whole life. She's always been practicing keeping him, keeping her cards close to her chest, not letting him go, not wanting to give him any sort of freedom. And if you don't practice that, if you don't let go a little bit at a time, then you can't do it all at once at the end. You can't do it all at once at the end. And also, again, the sort of decisions that that, in, that child is going to make is probably going to be more drastic um, than it would be if he was given more freedom. And that's exactly what happens in Finding Nemo, right? To go all mm -hmm. the way back to our, you know, classic Pixar. Um, do you really think Nemo would have gone out on the drop-off and done that extremely dangerous thing if he had more freedom to begin with? He had no sense of danger because he, he had the assumption that nothing was dangerous because he never got to experience danger in, in incre incremental, incremental bits. Um, and you also said something else that was interesting earlier. You were talking about how he doesn't really seem to grow mm -hmm. throughout the entire... I mean, he grows a little, but even at the point where he is, quote-unquote, a teenage dumpling, he's still significantly smaller than his mother. He's smaller than his uh, Canadian girlfriend. I mean, he's still a dumpling. So... Why do you think that's important? I think that that's how she sees him. That she always, always sees him as smaller than he actually is. Because one thing that struck me this time watching it is when he comes in and it's really him. So after she eats the dumpling and she's up in her room and she's sad and the actual son comes back, he's taller, way taller than she is. And he's so much bigger than the actual dumpling. And so it's clear that the little tiny guy, the little dumpling man <laughs> that was going off to get married doesn't seem old enough and doesn't seem mature enough to get married because of course he doesn't because you're seeing him as this tiny little dumpling when he's actually a lot bigger than that. This actually reminds me, so this is just a funny story, but recently I was talking to my mom and my mom was saying that she was talking to my dad and obviously my dad has lots of adult children at this point and... I'm, I'm out teaching uh, my older brothers. 
working making video games. Uh, I've got two younger siblings who are in college, um, another younger sibling who's just graduating high school this year, so he's got lots of adult children. And um, she was talking to him, and he apparently mentioned in conversation something like, yeah, I don't really believe that anyone's gone. I think everyone's still upstairs playing Legos. (laughs) I don't think anybody's gone. And of course, he knows that that's not true, right? He knows that everybody's not actually upstairs playing Legos. In fact, nobody's upstairs playing Legos right now. But he still kind of has that mentality that if he went upstairs, everyone would still just be there playing Legos. And that's not a criticism at all. I think that probably most parents are that way, where you just are always going to see your children as a little bit younger, as a little bit less mature than they actually are. And when you think back to what you were like at that age, you think, well, I wasn't that. I wasn't that immature. I wasn't that small and unready to face the world, but you were, right? We all were that at that age. Um, But you're always going to see this child. I'm speculating. I don't obviously have a child, but I'm assuming you're always going to see this child that you, you saw at their most vulnerable. You saw them as this tiny little baby, as a vulnerable little dumpling that could be eaten. And so doing the transition from thinking that this is a vulnerable thing that needs to be protected to this is a an adult human who is going to make their own life and make their own choices that that transition requires you to see this is not this dumpling is not as small as i think it is which is why i think the fact that we don't see the dumpling grow very much is important because we're seeing the dumpling through her eyes mhm and there's I think there's a, a bit of arrogance that goes both ways, you know, which we need to acknowledge too. Um, especially uh, the 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 in the case from the looking at this from the perspective of the child, uh, because of course they react negatively when they have their parent pushing on them and imposing on them. You know, I remember when you were six years old, and you know when I had to. Back when you were in diapers and stuff, and they insist, well, I'm not like that anymore. And it's like, well, yes, but you were like that just yesterday. And and uh, I think that from their perspective, they don't really see they don't really see that, you know, they see themselves as as being fully grown adults. And and I think that. Although it's true, I, I, I have to. I'm always switching back between the two perspectives, you know, because it is true that the parent sees the child much smaller than than he is, but the child also sees himself as much larger than he is. Right. And also, a part of that, it all has to do with distance and perspective. At least, I mean, even mathematically, you know, twenty years is one hundred percent of your life, whereas if you're sixty, it's only a third of your life. So. It doesn't seem, it you know, it seems like, a you know, as you're younger, a year is a much longer time. So you feel like you've been an adult for much longer than you actually have. Right. Uh, and, and so you do have to put things in perspective and realize, yes, I was just aware of the fact. I just learned, I just gained self-consciousness practically yesterday. Um, and I think that this is... This is um, so humorous when I listen to people in my own generation talking about how they are old, you know, like, oh, yeah, 
I woke up at seven this morning without an alarm. It's like I, I know, my body knows I'm getting old or something. <laughs> I want to go home. I don't want to party anymore. What's happening to me? It's like, come on, man. If you can still, like, remember what your name is, uh, you're not, you're not old. <laughs> I, I I can understand I can understand their perspective, but I think that also one of the things that they want to do that that young people in their early twenties and thirties want to do when they complain about being old is they actually want the status of being old. They may not say that they want that. They may not say they they actually are afraid. They're they they talk about it like they complain about it. Um, but I think that there is something deep down in our psyche that knows that there is something honorable with gray hair. Uh, that's mm-hmm. what Proverbs says. The glory of the old is, is their gray hair. And so they want, they, they, they sort of try to make themselves appear older than they actually are, even though they're doing it in a sort of uh, a, a complaining spirit. Mm-hmm. of being old they want people to see them that way um because they know that it it comes with a certain amount of wisdom and respect uh but the thing is that they haven't really got there yet they they haven't they haven't gone through unless you have gone through the suffering that a mother has gone through or a father has gone through of seeing your kid grown up. I don't know if you deserve the respect of being considered an old person. Yeah, I agree. All this is reminding me of, so there is a a Babylonian creation myth. I say a Babylonian creation myth, but I mean the Babylonian creation myth because it's the one we have, um, the Enuma Elish. And there's a character in that myth that I think we can compare to the mother in this story, but really because we can compare her to a lot of characters um, in the in the stories that we see. Because she's the, the mother. You know. Because she's the mother. <laughs> she's the original devouring mother, you could say. So um, the story basically is that we have all of these elder gods, um, elder Babylonian gods who are just kind of chilling, just kind of doing their thing. And then there are the, there's this younger generation of gods, and the younger generation of gods they're being they're being loud and annoying, and the older gods are trying to sleep, and the younger <laughs> gods are, are too annoying, and so um, the but but the their mother Tiamat, who is the the mother of all of them, who's sort of a kind of a mother earth sort of figure I guess, she doesn't want the younger gods um, to be to be punished. She doesn't want them to be killed. And so um, because she doesn't want that to happen, um, that is what ends up with how oh, I'm, I'm forgetting the exact story. But I think what happens is the um, her husband, Apsu, because of this now strained relationship between their father and them, the younger gods, uh, one of them ends up killing Apsu, their father, and Tiamat flies into this rage, which only happens... Right, she only becomes this monstrous terror because she is protecting her children because she doesn't want them to suffer the consequences of being loud and annoying and not letting the older god sleep. And then uh, Ea, who's one of the gods, has to bring his son Marduk onto the scene. 
And Marduk is this representation of order, whereas Tiamat is this representation of, of chaos. And Marduk has this epic battle with Tiamat and ultimately defeats her. Um, and he defeats her second in command, who's this, this evil demon named Kingu. And he makes the, the new heavens and the new earth effectively out of Tiamat's body, and he makes man out of Kingu's blood. So pretty bleak, bleak vision of what man is created out of. Uh, but the point of this story in this context is that Tiamat is this mother who, who devours, right? Whose theoretical love for her children ultimately backfires on her. It backfires on her family. It causes her husband to be killed. And she flies into this terrible rage and has to take control and causes all of this chaos, becomes a monster because of the fact that she is overprotective, that she is ultimately devouring. Which obviously in this story, the idea of a devouring mother is taken to a literal point. We have a literal mother who literally devours her child, who is portrayed as a food item, who is portrayed as a dumpling. Yeah, I, yeah I get de 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 the devouring mother, we might need to extrapolate that a little bit because we're actually taking that from Jordan Peterson, who's taking this from Carl Jung. And obviously Tiamat is much older than Carl Jung, but Carl Jung was the first person to design this system of what he called archetypes. And when we see an archetype, we're seeing a figure that's sort of eternal, that individual people, occasionally a body, and there are good archetypes and bad archetypes. And we're sort of moving towards in and out and towards one and towards the other. And so the one that we're talking about in this case is the, the devouring mother archetype. And, and I think it's also interesting, especially in the sort of symbolic domain that we've been talking about, we have this battle between Tiamat and Marduk. And, after, and, then, and then after, after the, the Tiamat is defeated, when after the devouring mother is defeated, that doesn't necessarily mean you know, the death of Tiamat, at least as, as far as I'm understanding it correctly. It's just the death of that archetype. Mm -hmm. Is that is that uh, a good way of thinking about it? As in, you're you're asking whether Tiamat literally dies. Mm -hmm. I think my memory is that there that her body is used to create the the Earth, but it might be. Uh, you keep talking, and right. I'll look it up. <laughs> yeah, that's actually well. That's also interesting because that. That is kind of what happens when the devouring mother is willing to sacrifice herself is that what she's doing is laying down, breaking her body, letting her body be broken so to serve the future, her future prodigy, I guess. Yes, okay, um, so she is, she is killed, heaven and earth are created from her body, and the, the tigress and the Euphrates rivers are created from her eyes. The Tigris and Euphrates rivers are created from her eyes. Dang. Okay. Wow. <laughs> I don't even know what to think about that. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't have to okay. interpret everything right now. All right. We were just talking about a dumpling. Let's get back to the dumpling before <laughs> I have, have an intellectual coma. Um, 
Okay, so here's something interesting. The father in this story. So we see the father at the beginning, and really the only thing we know about him is that he works and he's busy um, because they're eating food together. He looks at his watch and says, ah, I got to go, eats all his dumplings and leaves. Um, and then throughout the whole story is just the relationship between um, the the mother and, and the dumpling. And only after after she eats the dumpling and she's alone in her room, the door opens up and the first person we see is the father. And the father brings in the son, who we now is full flesh and blood human. And he kind of shoves him, shoves him into the room, which is very clear body language of like, go apologize to your mother sort of uh, gesture right there. And so why, why is the father absent from the story? And why does he only show up after she eats, eats the kid? Yeah, I have maybe a hot take here. You might disagree with me. I think the father is kind of the unseen villain of this story because when I was watching it, cause the father's at the beginning and then he leaves and I kind of forgot that he existed when we're seeing this whole story of the relationship between the mother and the dumpling. And I only remembered that he was even a character when she's, she eats the, the, the child and the, the eating of the child follows her struggle with, the dumpling at the door and the father is not present for that. Why? It doesn't make any sense. He's not there. And I think his lack of being there is maybe an indictment of him. That's a problem for him that he's not there for this really important moment. And that she has to go through this experience of letting her son go completely without support, without her husband there. And so that seems like a problem to me. And then Afterwards, when she's up in her room and she's clearly very sad and that's when her son shows up and then you're saying, yeah, the father comes and like the son's there and he, I think, I think what you said is that the first person you see is the father. I don't, I don't think that's true. I might be wrong, but I think that the first thing you see in the doorway is the son and then the father kind of appears behind and clearly has sort of orchestrated this and pushes the son in, in and says, you know, you go have your conversation. But it also seems a little bit problematic to me that she's up there in her room by herself and he is also not there even to comfort her after the fact. Um, and it seems like maybe oh, no, part of it, the reason. It is It is definitely the father, the first person you see. I'm really? looking at it now. Yes, I was correct. <laughs> just, just one. one <sighs> Set the record straight here. <laughs> My memory is so strong of the door opening and... Okay, whatever. I will believe you. If you're looking at a picture, I'll believe you. Um, either way. So she's there, she's sad, and then he comes and he brings this son to try and fix things, but he's not going to have a conversation with her. He's not... We don't have any scene of him trying to relate to her or have a relationship with her, etc. So that seems like a huge problem to me. And I do think that his absence maybe is the part of what is causing this problem. And that kind of goes back to the Enuma Elish and Tiamat actually too, is that part of Tiamat's problem is she, obviously she's overprotective and that's a problem, but then her husband, um, Apsu is killed. And so she doesn't have him either. And there's this 
instability when she has to face the world alone. And obviously there are single mothers. There are people who have children and have to have that whole experience on their own. Of course, that's, that's sad, right? That's a problem. But it's a problem partially because it's sad. Because that's not the ideal. And that does make it harder, it seems like to me. So, I don't know. I kind of think the father is is maybe one of the key problems in this story. Mm, I, 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 I guess I, I partially agree with you. Um, I think that definitely one of the problems... Again, one of the things that that uh, is necessary in order for the devouring mother to not become a devouring mother is to have a resisting force, uh, which is why Tiamat and Marduk need to have this epic battle towards one another. Um, and actually, uh, again, I'm going to venture into biblical exegesis, which I'm not an expert on, um, <laughs> but... The Hebrew word for helpmeet, helpmeet in in uh, the in the introduction of Eve and Adam and the relationship between the two of them, God says, "I will bring I will bring Eve, who is a helpmeet." Um, the Hebrew actually implies beneficial adversary, so someone who mm-hmm. opposes you, but also benefits you by opposing you. Um, and so part of that is part of what is necessary for creating a relationship and by extension a functional nuclear family is the fact that there is resistance between the way that the father sees the world and the way that the mother sees the world and those things working in cooperation slash competition because cooperation and competition are in a weird way sort of the same thing at least in this context um is what is what creates the conditions of of a healthy family because like you said earlier there are things that are actually dangerous that the child needs to be protected from um and so she isn't entirely wrong about needing to protect the child but there needs to be another perspective that can counter that with other realities so part of the problem is tunnel vision um, of not having any kind of other perspective who is countering her her uh, reality her perception of the world and so her perception of the child becomes skewed Um, and that's I mean, that's exactly what insanity is. Insanity Mm -hmm. is not being able to have any other perspective that can counter your own perspective or confirm what you see. Um, You need other people around in community with other people in order to confirm your perceptions of the world. Okay, so the father is absent. Yes. Um, But as you were mentioning earlier... Uh, part of what we are seeing here, at least as the story progresses, is we are seeing the world through the mother's perspective. So the mother's perspective is the entire, she's the narrator of the story because what's being narrated, narrated to us visually is the son 
as the mother sees him. What does that mean? Are you telling me that she is an unreliable narrator? <laughs> I I might be. I might be. Uh, I won't say. I'm just suggesting <laughs> that she might be an unreliable narrator. Um, but okay. What, what? What? Why am I? Why am I saying? I'm saying. I guess she is. She's exclu- She's excluding certain things from her life. Um, and so when I look at the relationship between the very small exchange between the the son and the father, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily seem to me that the relationship between the son and the father is necessarily tumultuous. So I don't know. I, I, I don't think that I necessarily, although I, I agree that there is an absence here, we have to also accept who's the narrator of the story, and, and it isn't really his story. It isn't really the father's story. Um, it isn't about. It isn't about the fact that the father is absent. That's not what the point of the story is about. So, you know, I only I only agree with you up to a point, I guess, because I don't think that it is accurate to say he's the villain of the story. I think the point of the story was to focus on her tunnel vision and the fact that her tunnel vision uh, excluded all reality from her life, including including a reality in which the father was included. I mean, either way, I think that that sort of takes us to the key moment at the end here, which is this moment of reconciliation between the mother and her son, which, so, so visually what we have is we have this mother who devours her son. We have a devouring love, a love that loves so much that it engulfs, it consumes. And obviously when you consume something, then it's gone. (laughs) You're, you're digesting it. And so this son is gone after she, after she eats the dumpling. And then when the son appears, I was really struck by the fact that he shows up in the doorway. He looks a little bit hesitant. She turns away from him. So she's on this bed. She sees him. She kind of huffs and turns over to the other side. And when he comes in, the thing that apparently reconciles them, that sort of heals the relationship is what you mentioned earlier. He has a, he has some, some buns and they sit there eating bread together and they both cry as they eat the bread and we zoom out. And as we zoom out, we see them kind of lean against each other. And that's the visual of the reconciliation that has happened through weeping and eating bread together, which obviously we're portraying a moment of reconciliation with no communication through words, because this is a short that doesn't involve any verbal communication. But my question was, where, where does the forgiveness come from? Clearly, there were tensions in this relationship. She devoured him, metaphorically, with her love, which maybe, kind of going back to Finding Nemo, going back to Marlin, insofar as Marlin devoured Nemo, insofar as Marlin didn't let anything happen to Nemo, so nothing ever happened to him, which is what wounded their relationship, insofar as, that, as, insofar as Marlin was doing that, that was an act of selfishness, not so much an act of love. And it's ultimately love that makes Marlon let Nemo go. 
So if we're looking at this relationship, she devoured him metaphorically and they somehow have to heal that. And apparently the healing is through sitting together and eating bread. What do you think about that? What does that mean? Well, we we know that Jesus definitely employed food as a form of memory. And that's interesting that he used food as the fundamental means by which we would remember him. Because we have five senses, right? We have hearing, we have sight, we have touch, we have smell. Um, but Jesus said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat, do this in remembrance of me. So the sense out of all the five senses of which he could have used, by which we could remember him, he chose taste as the, the means by which we remember. Now, why is that? Um, because obviously we can remember all, by all sorts of other ways. We have, we have auditory memories, we have visual memories, um, but it was, it was food that became, I guess, the most, the deepest and most primary memory. And also, that's also connected to smell too. So, okay, taste and taste and smell. Um, and I think that part of the reason why, at least one of the reasons why, has to do with the fact that not only does food contain memory, but it also contains the memory of brokenness. Um, it's not something that you can. Uh, that you can totally erase. I think that you can rewrite memories in a lot of ways. We know that memory is unreliable. We know that we are unreliable narrators of our own stories. So how do we construct a memory that's reliable, that we can count on? Um, I think that food does that. And so maybe that is part of why, that is part of why uh, food ends up being the thing that can bridge the gap between this broken relationship that can heal that because they're they're breaking bread together the fact of this as a this scene as a communion representation as a little mini last supper it, it just occurred to me that what's interesting about that connection is the devouring mother devours her child out of a twisted or perverted kind of love. The love is good. The method is bad. The way of showing love is bad because it is ultimately tied to the self. It is a selfish kind of love. But that what Christ shows in his real love is he says, this is my body which is broken for you. Devour me. You will devour me because I love you. And yeah, the mother yeah. originally says, I will devour you. Because I think I love you, but it's not the love that devours. Um, true love is devoured. True love gives of itself to be, to be consumed, which is what Christ does. And so the fact that they eat bread together, I think maybe is a little mini representation of that fact. Instead of, instead of devouring one another, instead of her devouring him, they will both together consume this other third thing. Um, which is a representation of the Last Supper, which takes us back to Christ who is devoured. 
Right, right, right. And again, it it contains the scars of what happened. Because that's one of the fundamental dilemmas of forgiveness is how do you forgive someone to say that I forgive you implies that there was something to forgive, that there was a memory of a wrong that was done. And one of the things that Christ promises that he does is that is that he is that he forgets our sins and he erases our sins as if they never were and that's an extremely difficult it's it's a difficult truth to swallow you could say it's mm-hmm. it's difficult to wrap your mind around that fact um what does it mean to totally forget somebody's sins and how can you do that if you don't remember what you have been forgiven of. And I think that what food does is that by eating the body that was broken and drinking the blood that was shed, um, you are able to maintain the, the memory of those scars, but those memories are no longer devouring you. They're no no longer a tyrant of your life. Those scars no longer determine you or dictate you. Uh, and so that's the way that we can forget those sins that were committed and also to remember them. Because what we are remembering is not the sin itself, but how this, what we're remembering is not the wound itself, but how the wound was healed. Yeah, and the fact that they only get to have a relationship because she lets him go. She lets him go, and not only are they able to be reconciled, but she actually gains another... Like It's like she gains another child because he's married. So now, having invited this his wife into their home... There's this really sweet scene. The last scene that we have is they're all together. They're making dumplings, and um, her son's her son is bad at it, <laughs> and she is trying to teach him how to make the dumplings, but he's not very good. And then the his wife shows her dumplings, and they're great. And she looks really surprised, and they they both clap for her, um, which is really sweet because it's it's this representation of a family becoming whole again, but it's better than it was in the beginning. In the first scene. We had her making dumplings by herself, and then she she sat down to eat them, and then her husband was there, but then he had to eat them really fast, and he had to go away, and, you know, it wasn't, it didn't look like a great joyful scene. But then yeah. at the end, it's their family all together doing the exact same thing, making these dumplings, but they're all together. And that only happened because she let him go. By letting him go, she invited something better into her life that she didn't foresee necessarily at the moment of letting him go. It's like, it's really, again, to go back to Finding Nemo, it's like Marlin uh, letting go inside the whale where Dory says, or Marlin says, how do you know something bad isn't going to happen? And she says, I don't. And he, he lets go anyway. And that's how they survive. That's how they make it to find Nemo. Yeah. And I think also it's interesting that that food is the way that we do that because that also makes me think of, of Babette's feast, 
takes us back mm-hmm. to Babette's feast. Uh, because how is how can we have communion? Because we always talk about community as if it's as if as if it's so important, and yet nobody really knows what that means. Like, how do you have community? Uh, how how do you have communion? Is there there's no really there's no other way for you to do that unless you are making making food or breaking bread together and. I think that that's what Babette understood in the story of Babette's Feast because she's a French refugee living in a foreign in a foreign country among foreigners where she's the foreigner. Um, she's totally isolated. She's completely alone. Um, and that could have easily given her an opportunity to turn towards bitterness and sort of collapse in on herself. Um but she decides that she's not going to do that. She's going to make something. And what is the fun? What is the thing that she decides to make? It's food. It's food that nobody really wants to eat because they think that it's sinful. That they're going and that and it's that that fear again. That fear that the mother had of like, okay, if I if I do this, if I let this thing in, and if I let my old self die, then then I, you know, I've, I've committed the unpardonable sin because I've, I've let go of my, my mother, my motherhood, my motherness. Um, I'm going to die somehow. And that's not forgivable. But what happens is, what happens at the feast is not that at all. And that's exactly why food in Babette's feast is equated with grace. Because what we thought was going to destroy us is actually coming to heal us and bring us back together. And that is exactly how the community in the story is is restored. You've been listening to Unreliable Narrators, a Mars Hill podcast. Unreliable Narrators is an original podcast produced by SOA alumni. You can subscribe to our podcasts wherever podcasts can be found. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate us, review us, or write to us at unreliablenarratorsstoa at gmail.com. Or support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. This podcast is produced by Raymond Docopil and Sophie Klomperens, and our theme song is New Moon by Caleb Klomperens. Stay tuned for a special episode coming up next. We'll be talking about the 2015 video game Undertale, created by indie game developer Toby Fox. Until then, friends, we take no legal responsibility for anyone who can no longer discern the difference between their child and a dumpling after listening to this episode. Also, maybe you should call your mom sometime. Just food for thought. I know you can see something inside The one part of me that I cannot hide And maybe it's true that nothing is new But I can see so much more in you There are no new words under the sun For all that